Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Essa Juan. I interviewed him about his book, The Libya Conspiracy, which you can find on his website, burningblogger.com. It's B-U-R-N-I-N-G-B-L-O-G-G-E-R.com. And uh, really had a great discussion with him back in 2017. And the Libya disaster really isn't something that's even mentioned on the American corporate media. So that was really worthwhile to listen to that, and I recommend people go listen to that as well. But uh, I asked him to come back on the show. I reached out to him to talk about the Middle East. There was a lot going on in the Middle East, and he's written a number of articles about that. So we're going to talk about that and maybe kind of his deplatforming experience that happened in 2019 too. But uh, anyway, so Esawan, are you there? I'm here, yeah. Awesome. Hi, William. Hi. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of you, can you talk a little bit about your background, what led you to write The Libya Conspiracy, and then a little bit about uh, what uh, is going on in the Middle East, considering this conflict between Israel, Hamas, and uh, Palestinian Sure. sure. Yeah, uh, in terms of background, I, I have some very minor background in, in journalism, some being published in certain magazines and publications and stuff a long time ago. But really, I, I set up my blog so that I could start writing uh, kind of unencumbered by, you know, other people's concerns and, and limitations and stuff. And the Libya, the Libya thing just was something that really caught my attention because I knew I had done a lot of reading about Libya uh, and the Gaddafi era. So when that stuff was happening in 2011, I was very uh, interested in it and very skeptical. So I was just, and I, I was, it was pretty evident that there was a lot of uh, dishonesty going on. So that inspired me to write that book and to put it up on the site. Um, and then everything really just uh, flows from there. You know, my interest in the Middle East and, um, you know, the Arab world and, and the politics and the war on terror and all this stuff and, it, and the history of it. Uh, it's all extremely complex and interesting. And, uh, you know, there's so much beneath the surface uh, right. to all that stuff. Well, yeah. there's a lot happening here, too. I mean, we hear about this, uh, what is it, the Abrahamic agreements and all these things that are happening that are supposedly can bring peace, so-called peace to the Middle East. But uh, what's your opinion kind of on everything that happened under the Trump administration and then this new kind of conflict that, that built up? Can you talk about the background and then how that applies to the current events? Um, in terms of the Trump administration, I know... Uh, I know a lot of people don't like to hear this, but um, Trump was always, I always saw Trump as a Zionist. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say a Zionist puppet, but certainly a Zionist um, agent, I guess, you know, and certainly Jared Kushner was, you know, without right. without doubt. So, right. so even if Trump wasn't, then he still was because of Jared Kushner in, in any case. Right. And we know that Kushner was extremely close to um, Netanyahu, uh, that they were roommates at one point, I think. So that they his dad together. Was, I think his dad, like, uh, his dad let Netanyahu stay at his house. So there's family connections, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you look at, and uh, Kushner is, was funding, um, the some of the illegal settlements some of the illegal zionist settlements in the palestinian occupied territories you know he was pumping uh, money into that so so was steve bannon uh, he was pumping money into the illegal settlements and with steve bannon i don't really understand the the philosophy behind it or because that seems odd with kushner i get it but um yeah so there's all these uh, obvious connections and like trump was so uh, overtly and excessively uh, pro netanyahu and pro you know, Israel uh, for most of his uh, 
for most of his tenure. I know most Amer American presidents are, but not necessarily that overtly or to that extent. And, you know, naming Jerusalem as the, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which was something that no one had done before because it was seen as, it was seen as a step too far. And, you know, it, it would cause too many problem, problems, too much provocation. And it, it was questionable under international law because, you know, that whole occupied uh, area is supposed to be uh, essentially like under international uh, observation or jurisdiction or something. So mm -hmm. it's not like Israel can't claim it, you know, let, let alone claim it as a capital, you know. So there's all of that. And so, so Trump was definitely a uh, uh, pro, pro Netanyahu and pro Zionist. And he, he had a habit as well of, of getting rid a habit of what? a lot of it a lot of it seemed to stem from his uh, from from Netanyahu's dislike of the uh, nuclear deal so so Trump almost became an extension of Netanyahu you know in terms of right. foreign policy and the position towards Iran and all that stuff so I don't and with Biden with with the transition now to Biden I don't know I don't know where he stands on this stuff I, I, I can't get a reading on it at all so but uh, what what were your thoughts about this kind of uh, Abrahamic agreement? Do you think it's something that is long standing, or do you think that it's just going to, to you know, what, what what's your position on that, and kind of what's Israel's position with, or do you have any thoughts about Israel's position with Iran? So uh, are we? Are you talking about the peace deal then? The, the yes. Plan, uh -huh. right? mm -hmm. um, so what I find what's really curious about that peace plan is that. It's so it focuses a lot on uh, certain states like Saudi Arabia and uh, some of the Gulf states, and I mean I don't I think Egypt might be involved in it. It completely uh, it completely eliminates Jordan from the equation entirely, which is really odd because Jordan is a really close ally of the United States, and Jordan has been very cooperative in terms of uh, U.S. foreign policy and Western foreign policy. So you would think that Jordan would be you know. Uh, would be given a seat at the table, uh, but they weren't. And it's really curious because what clearly one of the reasons why Jordan were excluded and they weren't happy about it was, is uh, there's something, you know, that uh, a lot of people don't know, which is that those sites in Jerusalem, the holy sites, so uh, the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa the Al Mosque, uh, right. <clears throat> the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you know, the Christian sites as well, are under the custodianship of the King of, the King of Jordan. He's responsible for those sites. And... All of those those uh, Palestinian worshippers and communities and stuff they they rely on the uh, King Abdullah's um, protection to, to a large extent and, and his custodianship of those sites, which he takes very seriously. Um, so the, the fact that they, you know, this peace plan just excluded Jordan entirely is is from the outset was very curious, especially then because very soon after that you had this flare up. Uh, at the Alaska Mosque, at, at, at the Temple Mount, you know, which is, right. spe spe you know, specifically uh, where all this stuff, this this uh, war between Israel and Gaza recently uh, kicked off. That's what triggered it. Um, right. And he was so like, and the Jordanian uh, government, like in the weeks, I think maybe a few weeks before that, were issuing issuing warnings to the Israelis to stop uh, 
their provocations in that area, you know, to stop provoking like the, the worshippers in that area. Um, so that so they were even aware that you know something was probably probably being planned, and they, you know they would there was some deliberate provocation going on to kind of ignite some kind of incident, you know, or, or conflict. Uh, and then you go back to because uh, because this stuff was was happening, I guess, in May. But if you go back to to April, uh, there was this strange anomaly uh, of there was this brief instability in Jordan where where there was a plot to overthrow the king, right? And it, I don't know how much that got reported in the United States. I'm not but, aware um, of that at all. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so there was basically, um, I mean, it, it was shrouded in, in, in kind of uh, mystery because there's never there hasn't been a clear explanation for what happened. But basically the regime, the government arrested a bunch of people, you know, ministers, as well as uh, one of the crown princes, because they said uh, for national security, because these people were actively involved in a plot to destabilize Jordan and to overthrow uh, the king, uh, King Abdullah. Um, so that's interesting because that, that was maybe less than a month before the stuff kicked off in uh, Jerusalem. But then also when you start looking into some of the uh, uh, newspaper coverage from from around that time and, and from even earlier, there's all this stuff going on with, um, like even in the Israeli media, they, they were talking about, you know, there's no place left for the King of Jordan in our equation. And, you know, these are actual quotes. I mean, I can't give you the, the exact quote right now, but they were basically saying King Abdullah doesn't have a future in Jordan uh, and he's not, you know, he needs to go basically. Okay. So, you know, that, so they're saying that, and then you have this, you know, and then you have the deal of the century in the background of this from which Jordan is excluded. And then you have uh, the plot in Jordan to, to, to destabilize the country and then you have you know shortly after the alaska thing and like the, the israel gaza uh, conflict so it it seems pretty clear that the why well, I, I think it seems pretty clear that the israelis were, were behind whatever was going on in jordan and that they just about managed to, to nip it in the butt you know interesting and you know, that he is actually a blood relative of muhammad that guy king abdullah he comes from the hashemites is actually he's actually a blood ancestor of the original prophet but uh, he's they, also very western. Yeah, Sorry. he's extremely western yeah yeah he's um i mean i don't know if you saw on the site you know i made a joke about it but he you know he's a big western he's a big american you know big fan of american culture and stuff he, he was in an episode of star trek uh voyager he was like he had a little cameo because you know he was a big fan of the show and all that kind of stuff I he's think very modern american if i remember there's a yeah there's a lot of connections between him and the states um yeah yeah but but yeah, you could, he's a, he, oh, please uh, that that sorry yeah that that family are are direct um, descendants of the prophet Muhammad. So if I can just like take it just a slight detour, like just to please do yeah go in, go into that. Um, so it's really interesting because basically that fa family, the Hashemite family, is the family in the Arab world that has the kind of pedigree and you know the the lineage and stuff like that and and for a long time uh, the respect you know of, of various tribes and, and stuff because of that you know by virtue of that bloodline and also by virtue of the fact that they seem to have like they seem to have just genuinely been respected in terms of how they conducted themselves you know over the years and, and all that kind of stuff um and then so in world war one uh uh, they were the main it was basically that family that started the arab revolt the arab revolt the right right um under i mean have you seen the film uh, lawrence of arabia because like yes, of course, that, that, yeah 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 so that goes so yeah so so prince faisal you know alec guinness's character that's um, yeah, and that's your that's your icon there is t lawrence right 
yeah 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 but he's but so so they were the family with like the pedigree and they fought on the side of the british and they were promised by the british they were promised um uh, an independent arab state uh, you know after the war in exchange for their their fighting on the side of the british right? right and then what happened was uh after the war the french and the british drew up a separate agreement called the sykes pico agreement where they basically carved up the middle east you know according to their own colonial kind of interests and and what they wanted out of which country and all that kind of stuff so the independent arab state never materialized even though it, it was pro you know it, they say promised, it promised. right that was the promise or it was faisal right it wasn't uh, that was his grandfather yeah. or brother so it's faisal king faisal right yeah, yeah. pretty fascinating and that and that was the whole basis of them you know fighting the war and laying down their lives and all this kind of stuff so uh instead the british for reasons that i still don't understand they decided to create well they, they decided to basically give the main part of arabia to the house of saud uh which was a family that didn't have any pedigree or, or any kind of lineage or anything like that they were just some random tribe you know some random house that uh were one of the tribes in arabia uh and so the house of saud got the, the biggest part of arabia and they got you know they were installed by the british and they got a custodianship of the muslim holy sites of medina and mecca which had been under the hashemites prior to that um they were caught yeah, they were called the Sharifs, you know, the sheriffs of Mecca because they that because they were the, the uh, descendants of Muhammad. They they had automatic kind of right to be the custodians of those sites. So what happened after the First World War is the House of Saud got Saudi Arabia and all those holy cities, but uh, in Jerusalem, they uh, they actually requested that the Hashemites take over custodianship of those holy sites, the Christian sites and the Muslim sites in Jerusalem, because you know with a with the Zionists and all that sort of coming in there was this big fear about being overtaken and, and buildings being demolished and things not being respected and, and all of that so the, so that family was that respected that they were basically you know they, they it, it was requested of them to come and take over custodianship and that that has remained the case all these years to now and it's still the case but then if you go to the uh the the peace plan you know uh, Kushner's peace plan and all that stuff there was something I was reading in the Israeli media where they were talking about one of the kind of unspoken things in there uh, one of the things that's implied is the idea of transferring that custodianship over to Saudi Arabia and taking it away from Jordan so that, so that the Saudis uh, can have control of the Saudis are a little bit more friendly with the Israelis than Jordan and the West Bank was what sixty seven sure, yeah. war was occupied. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. can see why they would want to do something like that and elbow out Jordan. Yeah, because I think the Jordanians are seen as being uh, kind of fair and neutral. Not you know, uh, you know, you can watch interviews with with Chris, with um, like the the patriarch of the church in Jerusalem. You know, the Orthodox Church in Jerusalem, basically saying that if it wasn't for the King of Jordan, that, that, that they wouldn't have a leg to stand on. That they would have no. They can't rely on the UN or, or like the British or the, or the Americans or anyone to be like, you know, uh, a protector or, or a fair kind of uh, arbitrator or, or anything like that. All they've got is the King of Jordan because he's, he's protecting those sites, including the Church of the Sepulchre, the, the Church of the Nativity, all these places, you know. Right. And those, I've heard that the Israelis are trying to kind of elbow them out by raising taxes on them. Have you heard that story? So they're trying to yeah, attack them. Yeah. So it's actually pretty precarious because if the authority of the Hashemite kingdom ever gets removed from those West Bank holy sites and the Israelis really take power over in some future conflict, 
the whole that whole holy land will erupt also would just change the whole dynamic of what's going on right there in Jerusalem. Yeah, and as I understand, I mean, I don't want to go too much into stuff stuff like you know messianic prophecy and stuff like that because I don't know that gets a bit that gets a bit weird. But but as I understand it, the whole idea is that Jerusalem becomes the capital not just of Israel but of the world. It becomes like the the, the center of world peace, and it becomes like the capital of a new era or something like that. So it's really important to it's really important to them, obviously, like to the Zionists, but it's also important to I mean, it, go, it goes into interesting areas because it's also important to, to Freemasonry and it's also important to, you know, Knights Templar mythology and all that kind of stuff, you know, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and, you know, all that history. And Right. I think you mentioned in your article that that was, the Temple Mount was the Templar's headquarters, right? It was right there in Jerusalem too. And they're, they're still around. I mean, Freemasonry and Jacques de Molay. So that history yeah, yeah. still still present. You said that those guys, some of those white far-right serial killer guys, Terrence and Breivik, were heavily involved in that mythology, symbology. I think you said that Terrence was, had to go or got a blessing from the Reef Nude Templars or something like that to do his massacre. Yeah, it's, it's, all, uh, it's all really, really odd and curious. But yeah, he, he said that, but then I think the judge in the trial basically said that that organization that he's referring to doesn't exist. So right. it was all like a figment of his imagination or something. But even if it was, it's still interesting that he has that in his psychology. You know, this well, I, I, his Templar. symbolism is a yeah, new Templar and he has that cross, the, the cross of Jerusalem, right? The red one or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. but it is interesting. I mean, so it's really still precarious there. Would you, I mean, this whole conflict between Gaza and the Israelis and uh, there's just all kinds of things are going on. Like what? So, what what is the situation now? Are you familiar with this guy Naftali Bennett or how the change of power is taking place in Israel? Yeah, no, I mean I'm, I know who he is, but I'm not. I, I know he's a very hard line. He's he's a hawk, pretty much. But I, and I don't know that he would be much better than Netanyahu. But I'm not sure exactly what's going on with Netanyahu. Why they've decided, you know, after all this time that he had to go. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe enough of the Israeli. The neutral Israeli population were, were so fed up of Netanyahu that they just thought it's just better to get to let him go and start fresh with someone else. You know? He's he's not out of the woods either, right? Isn't he have a couple criminal cases or pending corruption? Yeah, cases? I, yeah. I, I guess he's in a he's in a Trump like situation right. <laughs> in a way. Right. So yeah, right. So. What uh, what else did you write about? You have this other one, the, that's the Al-Aqsa. Why did Israel create Hamas? Can you explain the creation of Hamas and why it's beneficial to the Zionists? Yeah, well, so Hamas basically uh, it evolved from the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood is like, it seems to be like the, the, pro, the, the prototype of like all Islamic extremist kind of groups, including Al-Qaeda and whoever else. Ideologically, they all seem to descend from the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so Hamas was like a, a, a relatively, you know, a relatively small kind of faction. Uh, and what happened around sort of the late 1980s and 1990s is there was this whole thing going on uh, with Israel basically covertly trying to build up Hamas, you know, and, and, and help them to, to kind of gain more kind of prominence in, in Palestinian culture and politics and stuff. Right. Uh, over the, the PLO, reason, right? Over the Palestinian liberation. Yeah. So, so you had the PLO and the PLO was basically a secular, a secular national movement to create a national 
you know, a Palestinian nation. Um, so that they were secular. They, they were, you know, they had Christians in their own leadership roles and they had Muslims and they had atheists and it was, religion really had nothing to do with it. Um, and in a sense, that was a problem because that, that created uh, more kind of international sympathy for the Palestinian movement because they weren't, you know, extremists or, or uh, fundamentalists or anything like that. And also because they were open to peace. You know, Yasser Arafat basically renounced terrorism in the late 70s, I think. So as soon as he did that, that was a problem because because you can't, you know, if you're Israel and you're trying to, you're trying to have this enemy to justify the things you need to do uh, when your enemy then renounces terrorism and says, okay, let's, you know, let's negotiate, let's have peace. We're not going to do violent stuff anymore. And, you know, and then I think he even got the Nobel Peace Prize in the mid 1990s or something. Uh, so him and the PLO have become like a real problem propaganda wise because they were gaining way too much sympathy abroad. Um, and that wasn't, you know, that wasn't helping Israel's uh, agenda or the Zionist agenda at all. Um, so, the implication is that you know the, the policy, this, the kind of covert policy, then became to build up a mass, have them uh, kind of take over the, the Palestinian movement, so that we could return to a you know terrorism versus democracy, or like the paradigm of like you know the good guys versus the bad guys, rather than this kind of you know equal footing kind of thing. Right. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, if you look at there's actual quotes from Israeli. Um, I mean, I think I, I have the quotes written down somewhere, but there's actual quotes from Israeli, like the Israeli governor of uh, Gaza in the 1980s basically came out and said in, in an interview with, I think, uh, either the Washington Post or the New York Times, he said uh, that essentially they, they helped create Hamas and that they did it as a uh, to create a counterbalance to the secularists of the PLO, you know. Right. Um, so Avner Cohen is his name, and he was... Uh, a former Israeli official, and he told the, the Wall Street Journal in 2009, Hamas is, is, is Israel's creation. You know, he just came out and said it. Right. And then you've got the, the Israeli military governor of Gaza in the 1980s was a brigadier general, Yitzhak uh, Segev, I think. And he told the New York Times um, that he had helped to finance the Islamists, uh, basically to replace the PLO secularists. Um, so it's it's... It's spelled. It's spelled out from like the mouths of actual Israeli military people and and, and political people who've just come out and said it. They said we created Hamas, you know, to suit our purposes. So you you kind of have to assume that whatever's going on now, you know, or periodically with Hamas, is also just part of that same purpose, that same agenda, you know. Right. I, you I'm not, I'm not, create, yeah, you create your enemies is the best way to do it, right? Create your own yeah, enemies, so. because because then you can justify whatever you need to do. You can't right. do that if your enemy is peaceful, you know. And and Netanyahu himself, there's been times these conflicts that have benefited him, right? So I can't remember. There were some, even this conflict supposedly could have benefited him as a kind of a right-wing hardliner, right? Keep him in power, but uh didn't seem to work this time. But I, I, I vaguely remember in the past that he has benefited from some of these terrorist acts, right, to stay in power. Yeah. Are, you, are you familiar with that? Or? Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a similar thing that happens with, with a lot of false flag stuff as well, where it's just someone's benefiting from it, you know, like it's serving a purpose. And it, yeah, propaganda-wise for Netanyahu, it was helping like every time because he looked like the big tough guy protecting, you know, protecting Israel's interests and the citizens and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, it's but also the extent to which uh, a lot of the Palestinian kind of ter terrorism over the years was being covertly sponsored by Israeli, you know, by Mossad or by Israeli uh, intelligence and stuff like that. that there was um there was a there was an arms dealer an IDF uh, Israeli Defense Forces arms dealer named Ari Ben uh, Menashe or something and he published a book basically t talking about you know highlighting a number of these cases where where Palestinian terror attacks particularly abroad were being basically helped along by Israeli intelligence operatives because they wanted this stuff to happen because propaganda wise you know internationally. Every time that happened, it really helped, you know, Israel like to, to have the high ground and to have the sympathy and the support. So, right. You know, so he, he's saying Ben Menashe is saying that the attack on the Kili Loro was a secret yeah, yeah, operation. Yeah. Uh, people got yeah. bribed. People got paid. And then you talk. Abu Nadal was supposedly like this great terrorist guy, right? But didn't isn't he also have a kind of an intel background? So yeah, I mean he's like an amazing figure. I mean they absolutely should make a film, a Hollywood uh, movie about him at some point because he was like, so he was like the most brutal Palestinian terrorist, right? Supposedly, um, you know he was the one that even like other Palestinian terrorists were like, oh, oh my god, what is this guy doing? And uh, so, um, but then like, so a book was written about him and a lot of research was was, was done into him. Uh, an author named Patrick Seal wrote a book about him called Abu Nidal, Gun for Hire, where basically he exposes that this guy Nidal was working for Mossad uh, at one point, you know, directly for the Israelis, um, even while he was carrying out Palestinian terror attacks. So it's like, you know, it's the same thing of like, you know, uh, you're, you're creating basically the same brutal attacks that you're then using to justify what you're going to do in retaliation and all that kind of stuff but then also you know nadal like he was he was like a quadruple agent or something he was everywhere i mean he was working for the syrian government at one point and then he was working uh in like against the syrian government then he was in libya uh and but but it wasn't clear whether he was working for the libyans or against the libyans for someone else then he ended up in iraq um and essentially Saddam's, Saddam's people went to his apartment and killed him when the American-led invasion was happening in 2003 because they were convinced that he was working for the Americans. So, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary kind of... Yeah, it's amazing. And the, I think you write in your article that all of these so-called Palestinian terror attacks, terror attacks actually hurt the movement more than benefit, right? So that's also very odd. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but and logically, you know, anyone can see that as well, because it, it's, I mean, if you just take all the stuff that Hamas does, you know, but that's the that's the mantra every time it's like, oh, Hamas is firing rockets, though. So well, we have to do, you know, we have to do this stuff because they're firing rockets. Well, you could have had someone who wasn't firing rockets, you know, 20 years ago, they weren't firing rockets at you, uh, the PLO or Arafat, you know, they were they were trying to negotiate. <laughs> so you can't have it both. You can't cite the rockets as like the the blanket justification for everything but you you had the peacemakers uh who were at the table and you you didn't tolerate them either so right well there's like an interesting i think that during netanyahu the peacemaker here was mitchell right there's actually a picture a picture of netanyahu mitchell um hillary clinton and the plo guy whose name i can't remember but mitchell was caught up in the whole Epstein thing. So he, this girl, um, Virginia Giuffre, said that she had relationships with Mitchell 
when she was underage. And so then you have this guy sitting there in the peace process, right? Supposed peace process. But you write that that too. So you talk about some intel movements. But um, you talk about how there's the two-state solutions pretty much a goner. Do you, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that pretty much died with Yasser Arafat in 2003 or 2002, whenever it was. Um, so if you remember that, I mean, basically, uh, they, I mean, if you go back to the, I'm guessing like the mid nineties when, you know, the famous picture of Bill Clinton with, uh, Arafat and the other, uh, right. the Israeli leader. Was it Rabin? Was it Rabin? Uh, yeah, I think it was Rabin. Yeah. So, you know, there was, there, it was heralded as, as this huge moment, this big moment of, uh, the path to peace and all of that and that all just got destroyed and, and it didn't get destroyed really by the palestinians because they were just basically waiting on israel and, and then you know the americans and the international community to kind of carry this thing forward uh, what happened was uh i mean that picture uh, right there. Uh, do, you, do you see that picture uh there you go yeah yeah that's 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 the picture the famous picture uh rabin was assassinated by a zionist extremist whose name i can't remember but they said he was like a lone, a lone, a lone nut, you know. Supposedly, a lone he was able to get close enough to put the gun yeah. behind him. Right? And Arafat, um, they they said originally that he died of natural causes, but then a subsequent investigation found that he had died from polonium poisoning, uh, like uh, from nuclear material and stuff. So, so he, he was almost certainly assassinated. Um, but right. essentially how it ended for him was in, in 2003, the Israelis basically just started bombarding his compound in uh, in occupied uh, Jerusalem. No, in the West Bank. Sorry, in the West Bank. Right. They just yeah. began. They, they surrounded him. They, they just started bulldozing uh, structures and buildings. And he was trapped in basically, I think, two or three rooms in one building. Uh, and they were just waiting him out, you know, for... I think it went on for months at a time, you know, just like he couldn't leave. Uh, people couldn't really enter. And, and yeah, and then eventually he died of supposedly of natural causes, but, you know, it since turned out it was poisoning. So that was, I think that was basically, yeah, that was it for the two-state solution and for the peace process. And then, you know, after that, it really became the rise, about the rise of Hamas and the kind of radicalization of the Palestinian movement or or at least how we perceive it abroad you know right, we perceive right. it we perceive it as like an islamist uh, movement now when it wasn't really uh certainly not for a very long time right and so so that two state solutions probably did and they're slowly encroaching i mean we talked about uh illegal settlement settlements and these weird walls that are they're basically creating kind of an apartheid state i mean it's it, to me it's apartheid state but uh why isn't the international community really trying to put a halt to that? Because I don't, I don't perceive that happening. Do you? Uh, no. Um, there's something very odd that happens when it comes to Israel, and I don't. It's very strange. Like in terms of the uh, the British and the Americans, they have a, a permanent kind of bias towards Israel. Um, so, but in terms of other other countries, it's just very odd because, I mean. For starters, you have the, the UN situation, which is, in a lot of cases, you'll get the vast majority of the delegations will vote, for example, to impose sanctions on the Israeli government for their illegal settlements and stuff. But then, you know, the British or the Americans will just veto it. So that happens pretty much every time. So that's that's one uh, problem. But then there's this strange thing with Israel where, like, 
so for example you had like uh the the, the government in new zealand basically that they they voted to recognize a palestinian state and then netanyahu got angry and he, he threatened them i can't remember his exact words but he threatened them he said you know anyone who, who sides against israel you know will will uh regret it or something and then like a week later christchurch happened you know and it's just weird stuff like that where I, I don't you kind of look at it and you think you know what's really going on there is is there you know there's a surface level and then there's another level and then there's probably another level beneath that of, of stuff going on and i don't know if that you know there's a lot of maybe there's a lot of governments who are scared of israel or who are scared of the way israel is able to act in terms of uh, covert operations and stuff like that because yeah, I mean, and and then you can even tie all that stuff back towards the Epstein stuff, as you know, all that kind of stuff as well. Right. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole. Um... There was kind of a scandal in New Zealand, um, I think, in the '90s or maybe after the millennium. But there, uh, they had assets, Israeli assets, faking passports and things like that. And there was a big fluff, if I remember correctly, because these guys were using fake names, and so they were kind of uh, abusing the system there, and. Uh, so that was interesting. But then this whole Brenton Tarrant of Christchurch, I think he just got sentenced. I mean, he finally got sentenced within the last month or two, right? Mm. So yeah. that that was just, that whole legal proceeding just ended. And uh, yeah. I mean, well, and, he, uh, and he had been in Israel, right? I'm trying to remember that case, but he had definitely been in Israel. Yeah, he'd been in Israel. He had traveled around. I think his dad passed away, left him money, and he traveled around. And so did Breivik, right? Didn't you write that Breivik went to Israel? Yeah, Breivik was extremely pro-Zionist openly as well. Yeah, yeah. God, it's really remarkable. Yeah. But but that thing. I mean, it's. Uh, have you heard of uh, someone called Tommy Robinson? Do you know yes. who that is? Yeah. Yeah. So he's this guy in the UK, and he's supposed to be this, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, sort of the earth kind of one of the lads, you know, like standing up for, you know, uh, British. You know, I don't know. Yeah. He's the he's that patriotic kind of, you know typical patriot um and then you look into his background and he's like so he, he's um so he's massively pro-zionist as well and he's linked to like people like pamela geller and uh, richard spencer and all, all this stuff uh and he was getting funding funding from uh you know israeli or linked organizations and like daniel pipes and people like that so there was weird stuff going on there and then, and then you see him like you know he's like there's pictures of him wearing like a mossad t-shirt you know just like openly like proudly uh there's there's photos of him uh with israeli tanks on the syrian border like in the occupied like golan heights on the syrian border and he's posing with a rifle um and then you look into and then you look into like uh his he had he was on trial like a few years ago for um i think mortgage fraud. To, i think it was mortgage fraud right yeah there was that there was another one as well where, where i think he basically he tried to enter the united states on a fake passport oh, okay. and so he was on trial for that and like apparently he'd been given the fake passport by pamela geller right? oh, wow. so well, there's but there's tommy robinson's here in the states there's people here who get tons of funding through israeli affiliated groups you'd be surprised like some numbers are huge like four figures so some of these public yeah, people yeah. are being propped up by very wealthy people but you try and explain this to, to all tommy robinson's fanboys and stuff and they won't hear it they don't care i mean i'm trying to explain you know he's not what you think he is he you know he's you're, you're raising him up as like one thing and he's not that at all he's he's there's all kinds of other stuff going on i mean that's i mean i don't want to name names here in the states but there's people like that here too so uh, yeah, 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 sure. with robinson you know probably in that same network there's that these are assets so to speak 
not, they're not independent is probably a better way to say it. But it's the thing with the passports as well, because at his trial, the judge said the judge said one of the weirdest things I've ever heard in a trial, which is he basically said, um, I'm going to I'm basically we're going to try you. We're going to prosecute you under your real name, which is uh, I think it's Stephen, Lennon. Stephen Yaxley Lennon. Lennon yeah. Um, but your part, but the passport was in a, it was in a different name, but it wasn't Tommy Robinson. It was a different name. <laughs> Right. And then Tommy Robinson, like didn't, the name Tommy Robinson didn't even come up in the trial. So like it was just the weirdest wow. thing. And then he and then he said and then he literally said something. I think he said, um, as for your as for your real name, that will not be known outside of like, you know, private, like, I don't know, the private hearing or something like that. So it would never be made public. So bizarre stuff. That is really bizarre. Bizarre. Is that a re did that recently happen? No, I think this year? I think. No, no, I think this was like 2011 or something, something like that. It was quite a while back. Yeah, quite a while back. Um, yeah, well, anything else you'd like to cover? I mean, do you want to cover some of this right-winger stuff? I mean, this uh, what's it? This this article that you heard about Jerusalem and the Holy War style? Sure. I mean, the, there is like a, a whole level of... I mean, there's loads of connections between Israel, between the Zionists and the, right, the far right or right-wing or even alt-right kind of uh, groups and movements and personalities, you know, in Europe and in, in America and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's easy to find. I mean, it's like, um, so, th I mean, there was a really long uh, article that I wrote a few years ago where I was kind of looking into the rise of kind of the far right and stuff like that. And I wasn't e even looking for I Israel connections. That wasn't even on my radar, but I just kept finding them. So it, then it became a thing about, oh, okay, so why, why is there all this... Well, there are all these links to Israel, and then you find all of these groups. So, I mean, Trump, you know, went and made the Jerusalem declaration, and then you you look through who else has made that declaration, and you get Bolsonaro in Brazil, right? Oh, He's like, you know, a right wing pro military dictatorship guy, um, and then like the Austrian far right is is one of the other uh, parties that went over and made the Jerusalem declaration. That, that was a party. Uh, I think uh, I think they're called the FPO. Who they, they were founded by SS officers, you know, Nazi officers after the Second World War. It's the weirdest stuff. And then you look at all these parts. You look at um, the AFD in Germany, you know, the alternative for Deutschland, and right. they're they're hugely pro-Zionist, and they've, they've had all these meetings in Israel. Uh, uh, the, the the leader of that party, I can't remember her name, but she's Goldman Sachs or ex-Goldman Sachs, just like just like Steve Bannon was. Right. And then she, and then the deputy leader of that party. Uh, Beatrix von Stork is the granddaughter of the the man who was basically the final head of state for the Third Reich. Uh, it was Hitler's, I think, finance minister. Hitler's finance minister, I think. Um, so she's like, you know, it's all really strange. And pretty much every country you look at, that seems to be the case. Where I mean, Tommy Tommy Robinson in the UK, you know, uh, as an example as well, where. They, they, all these far-right groups seem to be funded by Israel or linked to Israeli groups or Israeli organizations. You've got people like um, uh, Nina uh, Rosenwald, who's like um, an American millionaire or billionaire. She's like the heiress to like the Sears fortune or something like that. She's like, you know, she funds all of these uh, propaganda groups, these pro-Israeli kind of propag uh, propaganda organizations that spread viral stuff on, on Facebook and, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, and then you you know you see these people like uh like you were saying like uh the Christchurch guy and uh, uh Brevik 
Anders Breivik, who all seem to uh, be connected to Israel or to at least like draw some kind of inspiration from Israel and from the Zionists. Uh, and it, it's, it's just, you can't, it gets to the point where you can't ignore it. Because I was actually trying to ignore it for a while, but but then it's like no, there's no way that all this stuff is uh, coincidental. Uh, the, the far right, the main far right political party in France, uh, the national, the front national, the front national, or the you know the national front uh, under Marine Le Pen. Well, um, Marine Le Pen's niece uh, is one of the members, one of their members of parliament. Uh, her father is a Mossad agent, and he wrote a book about being a Mossad agent. You know, <laughs> so it, it's just interesting. Interesting bedfellows, right? Sure. I mean, and you would think, you know, that uh, Jewish uh, people, and I, and I try and separate Jewish people from, you know, Israeli uh, or Zion, you know, the, the, you, you kind of have to distinguish what you mean when you say, you know, uh, Zionist or, or Jewish people or whatever. But you would think that they, they would have an aversion to that kind of alliance or those kind of, you know. Right. And, you, and then you highlight, yeah. right, you highlight Sri Lanka too as kind of possibly some type of false flag. I mean, it, the deaths happened, but that was, how many people died in those bombings? It was hundreds, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember how many people died, but there was, uh, there was a terror training drill exercise like a week or two before it uh, involving the Israeli intelligence or Israeli, um, some Israeli agency was involved in Sri Lanka. And that's a red flag straight away because... Oh, huge red flag, yeah, for all, even because, in the States too, yeah. Because Israel also has no real connection to Sri Lanka. I mean, they're not geographically close. They're not uh, geopolitically linked hardly at all. So, like, it's just odd that you had Israeli uh, organizations over there running terror drills, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, as, I mean, we're coming. We're at 40 minutes. Is there anything else you'd like to, to cover before we wrap this up? Or any, any, Where can people, you can go to this, uh, your blog, which is now burningblogger.com, right? Yeah, burningblogger.com. That's the that's the new address. Yeah, and then you um, have links to YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, they're not. I mean, to, yeah. To be honest, my 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 social media and my YouTube is not very active. All my energy at the moment just goes into the site, into the articles on the site. But yeah, all all those links and stuff are there. Uh, there's a lot of Israel stuff there, and there's a lot, you know, there's there's a random, there's a lot of other stuff. It's all pretty miscellaneous. Right. You're writing on UFOs too. You've got uh, a bunch of sure. stuff, cover-ups, conspiracies. But this we just covered kind of the Middle East today. And again, it's Esawan, and the website is BurningBlogger.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All Thank right. you. All right.